In this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, one man's quick improvisation prevents him from being a polar bear punching bag and instead earns him his 15 minutes of fame. The bear had just been bonked in the nose of the frying pan. He was, he was pissed off at the world. So he decided uh, he'd take it out on me and uh, made this full board charge right at me. Then there was a shotgun in my hands and uh, I raised it up, pulled the trigger and nothing happened. And another man talks about life in the slow lane driving two tracked Nodwells on Arctic sea ice in the 1970s. Since these things go so slow and, and you just steer them with these little levers and if you leave the levers alone they sort of go straight. So if somebody was to nod off the odd few minutes, you really can't get too far off track. <laughs> and that's why they call them Nodwells? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that one. <laughs> yeah, you hadn't thought of that one. <laughs> in, the t- in the 300 hours you spent riding in that, it never crossed your mind to call it Nodwells. Scientists, on ice, up next on Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, I'm Rob Prince. In today's episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, we feature a story from Joff Carroll about an unexpected guest that popped into his camp way up north on the ice off of Utkiavik back in the 1980s. He shared this story at our November 2018 live event in Fairbanks. Here's Joff Carroll. There I was. I was standing on the sea ice of the Arctic Ocean. I was barefoot. I was standing there in my long underwear. There was a polar bear charging directly at me and the gun I had that was for bear protection wouldn't fire. So anyway, I'll give you a little background, explain how I, <laughs> how I got into that predicament. Um, I was the camp leader for the ice-based census of bowhead whales uh, through the late 70s and through the 1980s, even into the 90s a little bit. But uh, anyway, the, uh, the idea of the census was uh, you know, count the whales each year and see if the population was increasing, decreasing, and ultimately basically to see if the population was large enough to support a, a subsistence hunt. Subsistence bowhead whaling is vitally important to, to many northern Alaskan communities, and uh, the whalers themselves have kind of a reverence for bowhead whales, and, and they're uh, vitally interested in maintaining a, a healthy uh, bowhead whale population. So the North Slope Borough Department of Wildlife Management um, conducts a kind of world-class whale research program, and and the census is part of that. During the times we've been doing the census, the population has increased from the low thousands when it started to uh, currently there's about 18,000 bowhead whales in the world. So they're uh, doing very well. We would do our our, uh, counts from the... It's called the landfast ice along the Arctic coast. Uh, landfast ice is attached to the shore and extends out into the ocean for anywhere from a mile to several miles. Beyond that is it's called the polar pack ice. It's, uh, it's unattached, uh, uh, free-floating, and it moves back and forth with the winds and the currents. In between the two bodies of ice are leads of open water, and that's what the whales migrate up through. And... Uh, so we would locate our, our, our camps on, on the edge of that ice. Uh, we'd uh, find these tall piles of ice called pressure ridges. We'd put our uh, observation perches there. We'd keep a 24-hour watch and, uh, whenever possible and, and uh, you know, count all the whales that went by. So we, we uh, had, a, had a crew of people that was kind of made up of, 
of a combination of local, local people and biologists kind of from around the world. It was sort of the, for us it was the ultimate field project. Um, we'd get to camp out on the sea ice for several weeks every spring and the ice itself would give us a tremendous show. It, uh, sea ice is very dynamic, um, it's always in motion, things are different. Every day we'd get to watch the tremendous force of the pack ice coming in and smashing against the shore fast ice with tremendous bangs and roars and groans and squeaks and whistles. Um, you know, and uh, sometimes it would rip off a chunk of the shore fast ice and we had to stay pretty mobile to uh, make sure we didn't float off into the ocean or get smashed by the pack ice. Uh, fortunately for us, we were camped in the vicinity of the Eskimo whalers who were you know, they're masters of the sea ice and they would give us advice and we could follow their example. In addition, uh, we had great wildlife viewing. We had uh, literally thousands of bowhead and beluga whales swim past every year. Um, we would see whales breaching up out of the water. We'd see mating activity. We'd see uh, bowhead whales come up and break through the ice when the leaves would freeze over. Oh, in addition to that, we'd see literally millions of eider ducks fly by. We'd see ring seals and, and bearded seals. Uh, later years, we used hydrophones. We put a, an array of hydrophones in as well to listen to whales go by, and it turned out that the bowheads and the, and the bearded seals were kind of fantastic singers. I mean, there's just always kind of a contrast. Everything's quiet on the surface. Put a hydrophone in, and it sounds like a jungle down there. So that was, was very... A couple other interesting facts about bowhead whales is they can live to be up to 200 years old. And uh, they, uh, after sampling many hundreds of animals, are uh, nearly free of parasites and other disease. And we've never seen any sign of cancer. So <laughs> interesting animal. Um, but being on the ice, the really exciting animals that we dealt with, or the most exciting, I guess, were the, were the polar bears. You know, we, we'd get this. We were camped right on the edge of the open lead, which is where the seals were, so lots of polar bears around. We'd get to see these feats of strength. We saw polar bears jerk a seal out of a hole, shake it around like a burlap sack, you know, and we'd see them spread their legs way out and slither across thin ice, you know, spread their body weight out so they could get across, uh, see them swim in. They're really good swimmers and divers. They would swim in a long way on the open leads. But there was always kind of that element of danger in, in you know, just sharing the ice with a big, strong predator like that. We were always always on guard. If you were up doing your whale watch, you know, you'd have at least one of the watchers every once in a while kind of looking back across the ice to see if there are any polar bears sneaking up on us. And, you know, sometimes there were. The people in the camps always kept a sharp eye out, see what, you know, and come and go from the tent, look around and, and see just what... It, you know, make sure there weren't bears around. We had a variety of ways of dealing with bears. We we used cracker shells, we used beanbag shells, we used air horns. We fired a few shots off with a with a shotgun. Um, we used snow machines to chase them away. And you know, 99% of the time of the bears we dealt with, you know, had a happy ending. It worked, worked out quite well. The way we would have our camp set up is we would have two sleep tents and a cook tent. It, it was that was always shoreward of the observation perch. For, for the observers that, you know, to rest up and, and get a meal before they went on watch. Spring of 1985, we uh, there had a lot of bears around. We, we made sure we had a shotgun with slugs in, in each of the tents. 
So one, one fine day, or one day in mid-May, um, one of the observers, a guy named Jim Schwarber, was in the cook tent. And uh, he was going to go on watch. He was cooking himself up a meal. And uh, he was kind of hunched over the Coleman stove there and thought he heard something. So he looks over at the door of the tent, and here comes a polar bear in, in through the door, kind of halfway in. And so uh, uh, unfortunately, the, the gun for that tent was somebody set it by the door. So I didn't. <laughs> That didn't do Jim any good, and so he started uh, yelling at the bear at the top of his voice, and didn't get the uh, response he wanted. But and so he reached out and grabbed the frying pan and threw it at the bear, and made a heck of a shot, smacked that bear right in the nose, and uh, bear backpedaled back out of the tent. A pretty good survival story right there. And I, I was sound asleep in in one of the sleep tents. Nice warm sleeping bag, you know, and I thought I heard Jim yelling something about a bear. So uh, I leaped out of the bag, grabbed a shotgun, ran out the door. You know, I didn't even take time to slip on my bunny boots. And uh, so I got points for rapid deployment on, on that. So, so anyway, I'm coming out the door of the sleep tent. The bear's just backpedaled out of the cook tent and uh, kind of spotted each other. The bear had just been bonked in the nose of the frying pan. He was, he was pissed off at the world. So he decided uh, he'd take it out on me and uh, made this full board charge right at me. So then there was a shotgun in my hands and uh, you know we always kept the guns with three shells in the magazine, no shells in the chamber, and the safety on. That was standard procedure. So I'm kind of cranking the shell in fast like good, same time taking the safety off and and the other thing that's going on is it's really cold, and guns don't always work real well in the cold. But anyway, I raised it up, pulled the trigger, and nothing happened. Um, quick as a wig. <laughs> I, there was no, no metal, no thought process here whatsoever, but somehow I switched gears and decided to use the shotgun for a, a club. And so, so anyway, then I'm in position, and uh, you know I kind of stepped into the bear. Adrenaline was flowing freely, I gave it my best swing and smacked him in the ear. And, uh, well, the stock broke off the gun, but, but uh, it was knocked the bear down, much to my amazement. The bear just, chew, went right over on his side. So, uh, okay, so, you know, and that was kind of one of those moments when time stood still. You know, I, 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 there's that bear, and I'm looking at him, he's looking at me. We both had surprised looks on our faces. And uh, he wasn't the biggest bear on the ice, you know, but he was, a, he was what you'd call a young male. And uh, bears are kind of like humans. They, it's the young males that seem to get in the most trouble. And, and uh, so, so anyway, he's, he's there, kind of shook his head and got back up, and he was ready for round two. And uh, so I stand there with a gun with no stock, and wondering what, what in the world I was going to do next. And fortunately, my best friend, uh, Dave Ramey, had come out of the other sleep tent, and he had a shotgun in his hands, and he uh, raised it up and used the gun the way you're supposed to use a gun. He, he shot the bear. And uh, so bear wasn't quite done. He spun around, ran off camp, and Dave shot it again. And we also called Dave Ugruk. But, so Ugruk, was, uh, he's got this great reputation for kind of a calm, cool mind and always doing things right. And he certainly 
certainly came through that day. I'm, I don't know if we were best friends before the incident, but I've always considered my, my, my best, <laughs> always considered my best friend ever since. Uh, so uh, we felt, you know, well, we were sorry. We had to kill the bear. I mean, we really tried to avoid that whenever possible. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it seemed a little bit unavoidable at the time, and it made us feel a lot better when one of the crew members uh, processed the bear and distributed it to the community, and a lot of people ended up with a good pot of, of bear soup. So for an incident that, uh, I mean, you know, it was, it was just wham, bam, and it was done. I mean, it was over in seconds. It's kind of funny to be tell us everybody else has these good, long, involved stories. My story is really over in about... Um, you know, maybe 10 seconds at most, but, but, uh, but anyway, for something that uh, didn't last very long, it's, it's had really a kind of a major impact on my life. First off, I mean, you know, I knocked the bear down so he didn't, you know, kill me or maul me or something, and that's a good thing. And then, then I had my, uh, kind of my moment of fame. I, for some reason, that got out into the press. It was on the radio and newspaper and stuff, so I got my 15 minutes of fame out of the deal. And uh, then a couple of weeks after the the incident, some some people showed up in town. They had mush dogs all the way from Duluth, Minnesota to Utkiavik, and uh, they were kind of doing a warm-up run for a trip to the North Pole. And they got to town, heard the story about the bear, and they wanted to talk to the guy that knocked the bear down. So so they tracked me down. And I, uh, we had a good conversation, make a, make, long story short, I ended up signing on with those guys, you know, the next year, and we, uh, and uh, the Steger North Pole Expedition of 1986. It was kind of trip of my, trip of a lifetime, and, you know, it, uh, it, it I just wouldn't have been part of it if, if uh, we hadn't made that initial contact over the, over the bear incident. But more important, uh, at the end of that census season, I was attending a party, and this very attractive young lady approached me. And uh, so anyway, it turned out to be Marie Adams, who was like the most amazing woman I ever met. Um, she grew up at a remote Eskimo village, but um, you know, in her 20s, she was executive director of the Alaska Eskimo Whaling Commission and could go off to Washington, D.C. and face down the federal government or go off to London and face down the International Whaling Commission and was able to, she and a lot of other people working hard were able to maintain the, the, the subsistence, the right for people to subsistence whale hunt in the north. And you know, then the next day she could come home and shoot a caribou and cut it up and fillet a fish or you know, cut up a seal. I mean, she could just do it all. Anyway, I, uh, I still had the dog sled to the North Pole and improve my whaling, whale counting techniques, but we, uh, we did get married and we've had 30 years of a, of a, of a very, very interesting life. And so anyway, to wrap things up here, I, the, I think my little story has three lessons, at least for me. And uh, number one, if uh, you're using guns for bear protection, man, get really familiar with that gun, whether it's a Shotgun, rifle, or uh, or pistol, you know, man, practice, practice, and know that firearm inside and out. Um, also, make sure whatever gun you're using is functional, and <laughs> and make sure that uh, it's uh, accessible. 
you know, I think a lot of us walk around with a pistol on our backpack and have this crazy feeling of uh, false security. Okay, number two, if you do get yourself in a tight spot, don't give up, keep fighting, uh, use whatever you have at your disposal. Jim used the frying pan, I used a gun like a, like a baseball bat, and Dave used the gun the way you're supposed to use the gun. So, <laughs> okay. and, and number three, um, you know, if you do something kind of foolish sometimes and you, and you get lots of positive uh, attention for it, just go with it. Go, <laughs> go, go, go with the flow and maybe even milk it a little bit. You, you, might, you might get an interesting trip or a really good wife out of the deal. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Joff Carroll. He shared that story at our November 2018 live event in Fairbanks. This is Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, the Scientists on Ice episode. I'm Rob Prince. Our next storyteller was doing research way up north on the Arctic sea ice off of Prudhoe Bay back in the 1970s. I interviewed him about the challenges of getting around up there at our March 2019 live event in Fairbanks. Here's Mike Ruckhaus. First of all, what is doodlebugging? Uh, doodlebugging is uh, seismic exploration. Why so, is it called doodlebugging? Uh, good question. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's... Uh, uh, because you're running these lines, seismic exploration lines, you go this direction, then you go that direction, and then that direction. And I think they used to do it in Oklahoma and Texas, and okay. the guys would be sitting on the porch and going, yeah, those guys are just wandering around like doodlebugs. I don't know. I think that's where it came from. Okay, nice. Sorry. And you were doing this when? This is in uh, 1978, winter in 1978. Okay, and where? Uh, we were northeast of Prudhoe. I, it was my first job in Alaska. I had been you in Alaska. You can go northeast of Prudhoe? Well, ba barely. Oh, okay. Barely. All right. Certainly the coast sort of goes northeast. Sorry. Okay. All right. So uh, I had been to Alaska a couple times, but I got this job when I was down in Colorado. I flew up to Prudhoe. We got on a plane, and we landed on this little remote strip out northeast of uh, Prudhoe. And uh, I was assigned my bunk there. And it was a nice little cat train, not exactly luxury lodging, you know, these little little trailers on skis that they drag around on the ice, your little 8 by 10 you know, slice of heaven out there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and as I alluded to in the intro, you had some ways of getting around out there, but they weren't fast. What was your main method of transportation? So our, our, I was a surveyor on the, on the crew, so we laid out the lines that they shot, so seismic exploration is you vibrate the ground, you put geophones down, they measure the vibrations, and you move up a little bit and repeat. So we'd lay out these long lines, miles of lines, and we go to the next one. So to get around, it, it, we're out on the tundra and on the ice, so we had tracked vehicles, nodwells. And these, the nodwells were, uh, I guess, pretty reliable. I, I was yet to be seen, but they had a, they had a top speed of some undetermined amount because we never could get there. <laughs> but say around 10 miles an hour, but we were told that they break down a lot if you drive them too fast. So are the rules where there where you drive them three to four miles an hour? And they still broke down, but I guess they broke down less than if you drive them 10 miles an hour. Okay, nice. So most people are pretty close to camp. 
so three, four miles an hour they could get around, but we, as the surveyors, we were going anywhere from 10 to 20 miles away from camp to lay out the next line. So let's do the math, three, four miles an hour, 20 miles, we did a lot of driving. And uh, we were putting in extremely long hours, and uh, you know, there, there's tended to be this thing about sleep deprivation. But since these things go so slow, and, and you just steer them with these little levers, and if you leave the levers alone, they sort of go straight, so if somebody was to nod off the odd few minutes, you really can't get too far off track. And that's why they call them nodwells? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that one. <laughs> yeah, you hadn't thought of that one. In the, t in the 300 hours you spent riding in that, it never crossed your mind to call them nodwells. <laughs> too busy sleeping, I, yeah. I guess. So. So you're going like three miles an hour, and these are those things that you've probably seen for sale on the side of College Road. <laughs> I, I, I had my eye on that one. I was like, ooh, that, it's like a civilian tank. But slow, they break slow. down a lot. And you would, you'd spend hours and hours. Hours in daily. And uh, so we getting the strategies. You know, there's two of us in the Nodwell, and we'd go out just driving around. And we, usually, we rarely went out. This, we always came back a different way when we went out. And... You know, being surveyors, we'd always find these strategies so you wouldn't get lost, because surveyors never get lost out there in the middle of the dark and going across the tundra. Honestly, yeah, but, yeah. but we developed a strategy so we could take shortcuts so we didn't have to follow our tracks back, which is uh, we'd look at the maps and we'd say, well, camp's about this direction, and we'd look at the Sestrugi. Sestrugi is just, uh, I guess, some sort of Russian name for the the snowdrifts, and the snowdrifts tended to be in a pretty regular direction. So it'd say, I want to go about this, that's about 40 degrees, this is Strugi, so you just point cross country, about 40 degrees, and you just stay 40 and then, degrees, and you go up and down, and you head back to a camp. And, and then just nap until you hear the screaming, and then you know you've made it. <laughs> well, actually, on camp, they had a strobe light. Okay. So, you know, you get within a couple miles of camp, and you can see the strobe light, so you, if you happen to be dozing, which we may have done once or twice, <laughs> you, you wake up and you go, where, oh, there's camp, <laughs> and, and you go over there, and then we could hone in and get to camp. Right. So one particular day, we were coming back, and this young guy was with me, I said, uh, you know, we need to go about 20 degrees to Sestrugi, you sort of go that direction, and I know we're about... 15 miles, three hours drive, three, four hours drive, we should be there. And it's my turn to sleep, so I go to sleep. And I wake up after a couple hours, and, and he says, oh, can't, I can see camp. There's the strobe light. I, I sort of look up over the dash. Oh, yeah, there's a strobe light. And I go back to sleep. And I wake up, wake up. I look at my watch, and I go, God, you know, we should be really close to camp. And I go, where are we? And he says, I still see the strobe light. And, and I'm following it. And... I go, this doesn't, the math isn't working here. And I say, stop. So we stop. And, you know, camp is this fixed point that you go to. <laughs> and <laughs> we're sitting there, and this little strobe light is sort of slowly moving. <laughs> and it's the road grader that's grading the road back to Prudhoe Bay, the ice road there. So for hours, we'd been going the wrong direction, following the wrong strobe light. And so we had to sort of, I said, okay, now we have to like, this and go that way another three, four hours. So it was a very long night to get back.
Yeah, some words were exchanged, I imagine. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah. We'll leave that one alone. But so my question when I, when I heard about this, I was like, how come you didn't just use snow machines? They're much faster. They work really well up there. Why not just snow machine your way around? Well, in general, we had a bunch of gear you needed an Oddwell for, but it did occur to us, and we asked the uh, manager, said, even if we had one snow machine, life would be a lot better for us. And uh, he says, well, we've never used them before, and we poked and prodded them. It was getting later in the season. It's getting lighter. It's getting warmer. And he says, okay, I'll get you one. Let's see how this goes. So we've been using it a few days, and boy, the life is good. We, we could get a lot more work done. We had one for the two of us, but we could run back and forth to the truck and all over. It was really working good. You're getting up to like seven on that, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, eight miles an hour. But Continue. We, we found the best way to get around, really, so instead of somebody going really fast out to where we're working, we, we just put it on a rope behind the Nodwell, and we'd drive out. And then one of the mornings, we're driving out, we're going out there, and uh, again, it was my turn to sleep that morning. And you just sort of, uh, it's really like a lullaby. You just sit in the knob and just go, <laughs> <laughs> out there. And uh, my partner was a little disoriented, and he says, well, there's a drill pad right there. I'll just drive up on the drill pad, and uh, we'll figure out where he is. But I'm asleep, and... Uh, all of a sudden, the, he, apparently, when he got up on the drill pad, he couldn't quite get turned around. And about that time, it comes to a stop. I wake up just to watch him putting the Nodwell in reverse so he could turn around. And by the time I could go, uh, it was in reverse, and the back end went up like that, and then slowly smashed our brand new snow machine. So we. So. I mean, this took quite a bit of talking to get this one, but, <laughs> but on the way back to camp, we said the flaw in that was that we could, uh, we could really do better with two, so the, the yeah. you know, two snow machines. One was better. going so well, well one was going. two is going to be twice as good. <laughs> so we, uh, we talked to the manager, we said, really, we're really sorry this happened, <laughs> you know, and... Uh, and really, we could do much better with two. And, and, and so he, he decided, okay, well, that, well That's we'll the give 70s it a try. in Alaska, right? That's oh, you right. need something, sir. Yeah, yeah go. So, so we, we were working farther and farther out on the ice, and, and we had this really hard point where you, you, for safety reasons, they said you can't go farther than this. And, and we, we really got survey, and really, we had it down. You sort of sit side saddle. On the thing, you have a bunch of stuff in your hand, and you sort of punch the throttle, the calibrated 110-foot punch, and you go, and then you hop off, and you pull the chain, and then you, then you keep going. So you could just the punch, you hop off, punch, hop off. Well, we had discovered, I mean, if you've been up on the North Slope, the snow, the wind blows all the time, and when you leave machinery out all night, it gets all drifted in. So every morning, We'd dig the snow machines out. The cowlings would be full of snow. And we'd dig it out. We did that all the time. But they're, they're just getting pretty out. And they're getting full of ice and everything in the middle. Finally, at one point in time, I punch the throttle. And, and uh, I hop off. But then it just never a throttle, never <laughs> let off. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't going terribly fast to you know, 10, 15 miles an hour. But I stand there watching this snow machine go off into the pack ice. It's well, like that. Well, we, 
We couldn't go chase it with the other snow machine because we had these strict instructions not to go out to the quote-unquote dangerous pack ice and sat there just... <laughs> <laughs> That was it. For how long did you watch this thing drive away? Well, um, it sort of, it, it was about 15 minutes, and then we <laughs> lost sight. And it, but it was still going. You could, you could hear the, the little motor putt-putting along. So it had a full tank of gas. We were, we were prepared. Mike Ruckhouse, everyone. <laughs> Mike Ruckhouse. He shared those stories at our March 2019 live event in Fairbanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. Today's show was edited by me, Rob Prince, story consultation by Lori Newfeld, live audio recording by Alaska Universal Productions. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince.